I'm Scott Kerr, and you're listening to Facing the Giants, a podcast where I speak to today's luxury entrepreneurs about taking on the Goliaths of the industry. My guest on Facing the Giants is Jean Doucet, founder and CEO of his Los Angeles-based namesake diamond jewelry brand. Doucet, a direct descendant of Cartier founder Louis Cartier, has been designing one-of-a-kind engagement rings for clients including actresses Amy Adams, Ava Longoria, and Janelle Parrish. Thirteen years after launching his company in 2010, Jean Doucet has completely reinvented his business model and shifted from mined diamonds to crafting bespoke jewelry with luxury lab-grown diamonds. Much like his great-great-grandfather Louis Cartier, Doucet is carving his own path by embracing technological progress, making diamonds attainable, and evolving into a designer heritage lab diamond brand. Welcome, Jean. Good morning. Welcome, uh, Scott. Thank you so much for joining me. So the first thing I kind of want to clear the diamond elephant in the room, shall we say, as the great, great grandson of Cartier founder, Louis Francois Cartier, you hail from one of the world's richest jewelry legacies. So early on, was jewelry the obvious career path for you, even though Cartier was sold to Richemont decades ago? It was not. You're you're actually framing the question uh, really well. Cartier had been uh, sold in the, in, the, in the 70s, and I was born in 1971. Uh, so I wasn't brought up within the sort of the operation of Cartier. It was more of an historical background backdrop uh, in our upbringing and in our lives. Uh, we also have to remember that by the time I was growing up, Cartier wasn't the size that it is today. Uh, that development happened um, much later on. There were like, you know, Cartier was really five flagship boutiques in the world. And it turned because of its historic dimension into the, the, the very large jewelry company that it is. So no, I, I wasn't, nobody in my family worked for Cartier. Uh, nobody, we were not connected that way. So I wasn't uh, uh, planning or thinking about jewelry at all until I literally stumbled into the opportunity to enter that that world. Yeah, what was that opportunity? Yeah, it's a it's a relationship that my mother had with the headhunter of Cartier, as a matter of fact, who was placing uh, somebody at another famous jewelry. French brand called Chaumet Mm -hmm. Uh, and they were looking for a high jewelry salesman and for some reason he thought of me even though I had no experience I just thought my profile worked well with with the the job description and just reached out to her and said what is your son doing and I was about to go in a completely different direction and went to meet uh, the CEO the new appointed CEO of Chaumet and just walked into Place Vendôme. For those of us that are listening that don't know, Place Vendôme is where it's sort of the epicenter of high jewelry in the world and in Paris in particular. And, you know, it's one of those moments where the sort of the grandeur of the location, the magnificence of the jewelry and so that the historical weight sort of really came through to me. And I immediately felt I want to be here. I just can't really explain it. It's one of those uh, things that people describe. You know, I knew what I knew, or and and that's that's sort of that that first moment. And I started a training with a diamond dealer in the area, and started observing the workshops on top of the the store. Most of the brands have workshops uh, high above the. their storefronts that's Mm -hmm. where historically they were located and just completely fell in love with the craftsmanship the beauty of the gems the intricacy of the work and obviously the uh, there's a very something very appealing about all of a sudden being immersed in a world where only the elite sort of shop you know that those are the most precious precious gems in the world and you were trained at some of the most esteemed high jewelers like Van Cleef and Arpels and some other ones. Why did you decide to venture out on your own? I think I spent, I spent my career just really learning from the best. Uh, I was very fortunate in that way. And I always sort of had a point of view 
on not just the jewelry itself, but the process of selling jewelry, of presenting diamonds, of working with the clients. So I had a point of view there that I always wanted to express a little bit beyond the confines of the brand that I was working for. That was the beginning of that. And then aesthetically, I also sort of had ideas, but nothing really uh, completely fully conceived that I would imagine or myself as a designer. And then after, you know, 10 plus years sort of going through the the career of working for these prestigious brands, uh, something changed in the jewelry industry. The diamonds uh, started being sold online. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was in itself, a, for sure, a disruption and a mini revolution. You know, diamonds had been shrouded in secrecy uh, for their entire existence. They were almost mystical gemstones. Uh, prices were hard to understand for consumers. Their origin and provenance, their quality were complex to understand. And all of a sudden, it was out there for everyone to to learn about. And uh, I thought that was groundbreaking enough that it gave me the idea of, well, why don't I embrace this disruption, but apply everything that I know about the tradition of jewelry making to start a brand that will be uh, traditional artistry, but for the modern consumer. Uh, Because if diamonds started being sold online, it's because there was an audience. There was a younger, newer audience that was, you know, shopping online, uh, learning online. You know, it's just a different different time. When I started in in the jewelry world, it was still very traditional. There were still curtains on the doors of the stores, Place Vendôme. Uh, these stores were very intimidating uh, and uh, it, everything was in flux. Uh, so uh, that's, that's when I started and I wanted to start a website and a sort of a digital brand. So I got really excited about that, that, that part of it. And that's when I, I took a leap of faith, but, I had never really designed a collection of my own. Uh, so that was the starting point. So from what I understand at the time when you did launch your own company, you started working privately mainly with celebrities and high jewelry connoisseurs. Did you have a signature design at that time? Not yet. As I said, I had a lot of concepts and ideas in my mind of what jewelry and rings in particular should look like but had never really sort of developed that into some something tangible and physical. Uh, the celebrity part is interesting because it's, I was, I was, it was serendipitous that I worked with celebrity. I just happened to have a couple of different relationships that brought me celebrity names that were uh, up and coming. Uh, first was Eva Longoria at the time she was more than up and coming she was like sort of the biggest one of the biggest names right. in entertainment uh, and that allowed because we had a personal relationship allowed me to create that ring so it did two things first of all I was able to express myself aesthetically and she loved her ring so she sort of gushed about it and talked about it and she was also very excited about the moment so that Celebrity rings immediately put your name in in a in a higher shelf, right? Uh, and it, they also have a very long, long life cycle because these rings are always talked about with the press. So there was that, and then Amy Adams at the time was in Enchanted. Um, so it was the beginning of sort of this big career that she's had since. And so these two convergence of celebrity rings gave me a little bit of a leg up. That also interested the press. The press finding out where I came from, from the mm. Cartier family, sort of thought that this was all that's a good the story right there. Story. Right. That's the story right there. And that's, that's really how it started. I just want to mention that I started, I don't have personal Cartier wealth. 
and I point it out because I started this brand and built it from the ground up, uh, from uh, working at home to sell, designing these first rings to writing out on a piece of paper what I thought the the narrative and the identity of the brand was going to be, and sort of built it all from from just these these thoughts and ideas. Um, and I self financed it for the better part ten years. Yeah, and all those brands you once worked for put original design and exceptional craftsmanship front and center, plus, you know, your bonus Cartier heritage. What did you learn mm -hmm. from those venerable high jewelers and, of course, your great-great-grandfather's legacy that you applied to designing your own pieces and growing your own business? Well, first and foremost, they excel at uh, selecting the finest gemstones and uh, learning about diamonds and diamond cuts and shapes and proportions and gemstone colors when we were talking about that has a lot to do with photographic memory. You can only learn if you see. Uh, and so being in that uh, very high, working with these companies for so long, I got exposed to the very best of the best. And therefore my taste developed into seeing the best gemstones. And I, I applied that uh, concept to the way I started my own brand. So that's the first thing, diamond selection, uh, the taste there. And then their craftsmanship, the way they execute rings is by far uh, superior to anything that you see in the in sort of in the jewelry world as a whole. Uh, and there and there are even degrees to that. But but let's just put them all in the same boat. Uh, they make they have the best artisans in the world. Uh, they create the best volumes, execution, polish, they refine everything. Uh, they you know, they, 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 they hand paint the pieces first, then they make mock-ups of the pieces. Then, you know, the, the technology has evolved, but the, so the, the, the gemstone selection, then the craftsmanship. It also works that the craftsmanship and the gemstone selection also bodes well with my personality. I do like, I do like things that are really, really well-made, really technical. Uh, so, that's my biggest takeaway from working with these brands. And I'd be remiss also if I didn't bring up the, the way that you learn how to handle yourself selling jewelry. Mm -hmm. They also do it best. You know, they had cent I mean, decades of experience meeting some of the most refined, uh, influential jewelry buyers. Uh, so they developed all sorts of ways of greet and speak and you know and, and I think that it also meshes into the what Jean Doucet is today so there are a big uh, influence I have to point out that the Cartier heritage is not something that was at the forefront of my identity as a brand it was there but I never said well because I am a descendant of Louis Cartier that makes me a legitimate designer uh, because first of all, I didn't think so. And I also wanted to be my own person first and see how consumers and clients and people would receive my designs and my ideas and, and the way I speak in, pre in present. And from there, we, we brought up sort of that Cartier heritage, the, the way it is today. Today is, is a lot more uh, upfront because it is an important uh, marketing element of the brand. It is something unique that no other current designer that I know of possess. Uh, and it also, um, you know, I have to uh, live up to the legacy. And so it's very important for me not to, uh, not to have a chip on my shoulder, but very important to me to have the utmost respect in what I do as far as how it connects to my, 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 my descendants, if you will. 
And in 2010, when e-commerce was just starting to rapidly grow, you went digital and launched this innovative online platform that allowed consumers to try before they buy their mind diamond engagement rings. How did that process work? I thought digital was very interesting. It was the future. And I just always wanted to look towards innovation. It was also a way to start a brand with a minimal amount of resources, right? I didn't have to have a boutique. I didn't have to have inventory. So I needed to make everything to order. And in order to make the consumers feel more comfortable by purchasing a ring from someone they've never really heard of at the time uh, and a diamond they've never seen, I need to put my best foot forward to make the most convincing uh, confidence building sort of approach. And I had some experience with silver and cubic zirconium uh, jewelry making. So I, I thought at the time, and it's been done many times since then, I saw at the time of creating this try before you buy and where mm -hmm. I would send an exact replica of our main designs to consumers for them to try. And it was very, it's very powerful, right? Because it builds confidence, builds trust. People can see the, the ring on their hands. The only, uh, the only reason it's problematic is it's logistically very complicated. Love the, the, the concept is very well received by, uh, by consumers. So that was your first experience with faux diamonds? That was my first experience. Yeah, that was, um, yes, uh, I was, I was, that was a good way to send a very, very inexpensive item to somebody in order to purchase a very significant one. So fast forward 10 years to around 2020, mm. and you start to increase your use of lab-grown diamonds with the Wii line of engagement rings at price points that are less expensive than natural diamonds. Were there insights about the market that drove you to put lab-grown diamonds more in the forefront of your engagement ring business? You know, I had built a, a, a nice brand uh, over the past uh, decade or so. Um, you know, well-received, successful in its in its own uh, dimension. Um, but I've always thought about scaling and doing more. There's something that's always, always been on my mind since I worked Paz Vendôme. I always regretted that all this beauty that I was surrounded with was not accessible to more people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The days were long. The number of people pushing the door was small. I was always like, I wish, I wish we could do more, right? I also thought that really well-made jewelry and really well-chosen diamonds were, didn't have to be overly expensive. I think it's a matter of taste not really a matter of means uh, for, for the jewelry. So, so that's kind of what, what I wanted to do. And I was trying to find ideas to scale. And the only way to scale at the time was natural diamonds. There's only one way to make a natural diamond cheaper is to make it smaller and of a lesser quality. Right. I just wasn't getting anywhere with that approach. And people were coming to me with lab-grown production that's maybe five, six years ago. Um, and uh, they were kind of looking for legitimacy. They were more technology people, not really diamond world or diamond jewelry industry people yet. They were looking for legitimacy and they were mostly coming with uh, an approach that, that had to do with the ethical side of things. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, first of all, it's disingenuous to label natural diamond as blood diamonds. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that's what's interesting about lab-grown diamond. What's interesting is the value proposition. And the reason why I didn't act on it at the time is because the diamonds were not well cut yet, Scott. Like just I mentioned before, there is an art to cutting diamonds. And uh, they were diamonds. They are diamonds, but they weren't really cut well. So that was the first thing. Um, so I was like, well, and then they weren't certified. And I thought that this, that needs to happen. And then fast forward a few years, uh, I could see that some 
some people were sort of transition from the natural world production to the lab grown production. The diamond cutting was excellent. The polishing and cutting, the stones look incredible. And the GIA, the Gemological Institute of America, which is the benchmark for diamond trading worldwide for decades, was grading lab-grown diamonds as diamonds, as they should, but they were putting natural diamonds and lab-grown diamonds on an equal footing in terms of color and clarity and and polish and symmetry. And they were just grading it the same way. The only difference they were saying laboratory grown on the certificate. So you now, so the, so that was big for me because that's like if if GIA recognizes that lab diamonds are diamonds, uh, then therefore they are ready for, for prime time. I was just sort of liberated because I've just spent the last almost 30 years of my career selling to a very small elite number of people first, and then selling to people that are always sort of compromising. So if I, if I just simplify it to a couple that comes in to see you to buy a diamond engagement ring, the budget is constantly at the forefront of the conversation. The diamond price is so high that you need to adjust the color and the weight and the clarity. So you, you're constantly adjusting, compromising, and there is just tension around it, right? I can't get what I want, or it's not really quiet. Okay, and then this, I settle, I, I compromise. Lab-grown diamond just sort of liberates, lift, lifts all of those barriers. And it now allows people to have what they want not an obscene diamond of an obscene size. It allows them to, we know, we know from surveys, they are able to buy size and quality that they would want at a price that they are prepared and ready and able to afford. That's very, very compelling. And so to me, I was like, well, I'm gonna try. You know, it wasn't, it's not easy. You've been doing the same thing for nearly 30 years. Uh, there is, the industry is sort of, you know, there are two camps here. There are like the natural people and then the lab grown people. And I'm, here I am, a designer, you know, somehow known designer that says, I'm going to sell lab grown. So you get messages like, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> I can't believe it. Your grandfather must be turning in his in his coffin and you know i get that you know and then i said well I'm, I'm i'm i feel really good about it and i feel that i need to try so i tried it i had a sort of a a, a joint a collection that i had from jean de called we by jean de that i had built for scale that was just kind of there ready to be the lab collection and i tried it and literally the day we turned that on, it just sold. It, it, it literally just, people were just purchasing these rings from us with a lab diamond center stone. And increasingly more months after months after months after months. And it wasn't a different customer, Scott. It was the same people that we were used to seeing having to spend on an average let's say twenty to $30,000 for their engagement ring. That's kind of what our price AOV was, what average order value. And then all of a sudden, same profile, same, you know, same profile, yeah, same demographic is purchasing these uh, lab-grown diamonds and in, in just larger volume. So it answers the question that I asked myself years before, is Jean Doucet, can Jean Doucet appeal to more people than this particular group we're working with? And uh, will lab grown diamond be well received? And they were. And so quickly thereafter, I couldn't see myself sitting on the fence. Like I can't say, well, do you want some lab grown or do you want some natural? I got both. <laughs> you were, I, yeah, I you were that, all in at this point, right? Yeah, I thought that was just like, that's just not, like, I, I was not sustainable. It was yeah. okay to test it, but not sustainable as a brand. Like you have to 
I have to tell people who I am. And uh, it, it was obvious to me I needed to pivot completely to lab grown. Yeah, which you've just recently did. You know, your whole business model shifted. You yes. Know, you're talking about it's kind of a little bit of a risky decision that doesn't come overnight. It just sounds like you put a lot of thought into it and that it was leading to this. Did you feel there was a larger strategic business opportunity with just lab grown diamonds? Yes, for sure. First of all, I think it's the future. This conversation about lab versus natural is going to persist until consumers have made the final decision. Right. Okay. Right now, everybody's for a good reason. You know, some people are highly invested into the natural world. And this is a disruption. This is a disruption beyond the, uh, of, of no prior uh, it's never happened before. The, the, the diamond jewelry industry has never had to reconsider its existence. So this is big. You know, I, I talk to editors that are in their 30s. For them, it's an obvious choice. They're not questioning it. They're not wondering. They're not, you know, having these sort of debate amongst themselves about, should I buy a diamond that's sort of friendlier to the environment and doesn't have any issues with the ethics and also happens to be affordable. I mean, still a luxury product by every dimension, but affordable, like, no, they, they're not hesitating. And then if you're thinking about the generations to come, because my idea is to build a brand that lasts, Scott, I'd like it to be some kind of my own legacy. So I had to think about the consumers now and 20 years forward. My daughters are two and five years old and they learn that you don't release a balloon in the air because it's gonna end up in the ocean and then on a turtle. Right. And I didn't learn that 45 years ago in school. I didn't learn about the environment. I didn't learn about the earth. And so anything that we're doing as a society is gonna have to converge towards that. Digging into the ground for vanity, for beauty, for accessories, it's just not going to be a, a winning proposition. So I'm just like projecting myself a little bit, but that to me looks like the future. And so I want to embrace it while also as a business opportunity, everybody's still wondering what to do. Because if you look at the current landscape in the jewelry world, you have companies that are so big that they can't just turn this ship around this quickly uh, and whoever are the newcomers in the lab grown space don't have the don't have the background that I have so I sort of have credibility reputation background and heritage and I have the, the opportunity the incredible unique opportunity to be able to pivot and be one of the first to do it so I'm one of the first to talk about it this way that that's where I see the business opportunity. And that's why ultimately I did it. And you're opening a boutique in Beverly Hills this summer. So when people go into the Jean Doucet boutique, what, what can customers expect? The, the lab grown awareness is, is, is very high, but people always come with two questions. Typically I have two questions for those that have not heard of it or very little, they say, is it real? Is it a diamond? Yes. And can I tell them apart? No. So, so these two questions can only be answered by seeing it. I mean, I can tell you that it is, but you're going to believe me because you somehow, you know, feel that I have some authority in the diamond world. But until you see it for yourself, you don't really know what a lab diamond looks like. To you, it probably looks like something different. So the boutique expectation and goal is to give people a first-hand experience of what these diamonds look like, just like the other diamonds, but you need to see for yourself. So that's the first goal that we want to accomplish. And the second is to present it in a way that doesn't feel like it's a different product. Really. It is the same diamond i'm still making rings the same way i'm still using 18 karat gold 
rose gold, platinum, still making classic timeless engagement rings. Still by all the accoutrements, the jewelry accoutrements are the same. Only the origin of the diamond changes. So that's kind of the first part. And then the second part, I also thought that this is the opportunity to create an environment, a retail environment that will be different than the, you know, I want to say cookie cutter jewelry store expectation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the theme overall of the boutique is to take people through that transformation from rough to polish. So a lot of the furniture, everything is done custom. Is, is taking sort of that transformation from larger, rougher facets to highly polished ones. And then sort of show that transformation that both of these diamonds have in common. For your listeners, it's important to know that lab diamonds come into a rough stage the same way that natural diamonds come in a rough stage. They, the shape is different but the material is the same, right? Because it is a diamond. And so the cutting for both of these stones is the same. It's the same approach, same artisan, same skills to create, you know, from both roughs, an oval cut diamond, for example. So I want to portray that in the concept of the boutique. And also I like the idea of the transformation from rough to polish. The, the idea of transformation period to also talk about the transformation of the diamond industry. It is going through a paradigm shift that is taking place before our eyes, the same way that other industries have gone through, you know, like technology, uh, so forth and so on. And it's just an irresistible force. Beverly Hills, where your, your boutique is going to be, is, you know. West Hollywood, the, actually. The oh, it's West Hollywood. West. Well, still, yeah, yeah. same thing, you know. Uh, adjacent. <laughs> so it, it's, you know, it's the wealthiest zip code on, in, in the U.S. And, yes. you know, natural diamond high jewelry flows like water there. So do you think you'll have a harder time changing opinions in that location? No, I think, I actually think the opposite. I think that, you know, the. In the natural world, there is cheap and then very expensive, right? You can buy a diamond ring for a few hundred dollars and you can buy a diamond ring for a few million dollars, right? Same thing. In the lab-grown world, it's gonna be the same. There's gonna be the cheap lab-grown jewelry and then there's gonna be the high-end version of that. Uh, I think that affluent buyers are actually a prime consumer target for lab-grown diamonds. People that enjoy the, you know, sort of these, the style and the fashion and no longer will have to spend 10X for a piece of diamond jewelry. It will still be branded and will still be beautifully made and, you know, will still look like diamonds because let's remember that the reason why we're talking about this is because diamonds are beautiful, right? They capture light of a mystique about them and an allure about them that no other gemstone has. So people like to wear diamonds. And you're going to have these people with a high disposable income that are going to be able to, for the first time, see the jewelry that they typically like to purchase at a just much more reasonable price. I can tell you that we see it already because we're, not, we're selling big stones, Scott, uh, right now up to 10 carat diamonds. Uh, we're selling diamond bracelets and we're selling to people that are clearly affluent buyers. And they're welcoming the reprieve, welcoming the reprieve. And you know, there's also one more aspect about that customer that I think is important is that if you're wearing a $100,000 bracelet outside, it feels risky. If you're wearing a $10,000 bracelet, identical 12 or 15, whatever, it's a lot less burden. I think it's, it, it taps into a lot of different things that people are concerned with, you know, uh, security, safety, price. So I think that this is the perfect place to do it. And I, I really wanna say that we 
as a brand, do not talk about price as a as a sort of like um, at the forefront of our marketing and our communication. We don't say it's cheaper, it's cheap. We don't use these words. Uh, it's just, it's not cheap. 10,000, 15,000, whatever is not cheap. It's not cheap. Cheap is $10, $15. You know, this is by all account, a luxury product. I was going to say, where do you source your lab grown diamonds from? So I'm very lucky because I have had a long, long lasting relationship with a diamond cutter uh, that is based in the US um, who buys the roughs. So roughs is coming internationally from many different places, including India, uh, China. I don't buy rough. I buy only polished diamonds. Uh, but as a whole, as a as a production value, uh, rough diamonds are some of them are grown in the U.S. Some of them it's grown internationally. The the rough, right? Uh, but I buy the diamonds from uh, particularly one source because they have outstanding artisanship of cutting, and so they purchase the rough from different locations, and then I get the final product. And there are a bunch of other growing businesses that specialize in lab-grown diamond engagement rings and lab-grown diamond jewelry, like Rye, you know, Brilliant Earth, mm -hmm. Blue Nile, and others. Yes. How does the Jean Doucet position itself versus the competition? I was really sort of narrowly, for a long time, for, for, for resource reasons and organization reasons, we're a very small company. I was focused on the bridal market. Uh, so I was looking at some of these brands. Uh, like burnt earth, you know, as obvious competition, they still are, uh, but they're they're using a different uh, they're using a different model. First of all, their brilliant earth uses a multi. They sell everything; they don't just sell lab grown. So I think the first point of differentiation is the fact that we're exclusively selling lab grown diamonds. I I'm very impressed with what you know all of these companies do, but. They have a different spirit, a different uh, soul, if you will. And that's sort of that, not abstract, but that's that, uh, that's that element of branding that sets you apart. Beside the craftsmanship, which I think we do a better job at, and the innovation in design and the diamond selection. I think all of these luxury elements, you know, like, on our website, Scott, there isn't every single diamond in the world for sale, first of all. Uh, so that's the case on some of the websites you mentioned. They have everything for sale. Mm -hmm. Every certificate, every shape, every cut, every quality, everything. We create everything to a certain standard level, which, which does put you in that sort of luxury category, right? If you go to a luxury brand, there isn't everything. There's just like a very specific, uh, channel of product and quality and standards. So that's the that's one of the things. Rye is a little different. Rye is sort of the it comes from um, diamond foundry. Rye certificates their own diamonds. Rye uh, does sort of more standard everyday jewelry. Uh, doesn't try to doesn't really try to be something else. This is what they do. So I think that it's a different positioning. Uh, there are competitors in the way that we sell the same sort of uh, same material, but I think just like in everything else, I think we're operating on sort of different levels of communication, presentation, uh, philosophically different, like the diamond approach I mentioned, the craftsmanship I mentioned. And to each his own, you know, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a dicey question. Where I'd like to elevate Jean Doucet is towards where I came from. And, you know, like if you are some of the businesses, the companies that you just mentioned, in order to have the massive amounts of sales that they do, they need to have a much broader reach, right? They need to have different price points. They need to make jewelry a different way in order to hit these price points. So all of that stuff is a little bit different. 
I'd like to be to hopefully take be able to take the Jean Doucet boutique and then displace it and then place it in Paris next to these other illustrious jewelers or in New York next to the, the high the highest of brands and just have it have it do well and and fit well. And that would be sort of where I'd like to see uh, Jean Doucet being as an alternative, not as a competitor of these beautiful brands because they do something very, very different. And you've said your brand stands for Legacy Liberated. Can you explain what that means? Coming from, coming from where I come from and this connection to the past and to the utmost tradition of jewelry making sort of naturally would tie you, no pun intended, to the natural world. Mm-hmm. You know, doing things a certain way. And so it's sort of that liber- legacy liberation is liberated. It's just like, we're going to take everything that's amazing about the past and then we're going to turn towards the future. I'm not turning my back on the past. I'm just evolving. And, uh, and, and it sort of goes back to the question that uh, some, someone has asked me recently, what do you think Louis Cartier would say? about that and they say right. i think i think i think that he would embrace it i don't know if he'd do it himself <laughs> but <laughs> let's just say i think he would embrace it because he was an innovator louis cartier was the designing imaginative force behind the the, the brand for a long time right uh, and he innovated all the time he presented jewelry with fashion, which originally was sort of like controversial. He was one of the first one to use platinum and diamond baguette diamonds and the wristwatch. And so he was always kind of thinking of what's next, what, what's new, what's different. And that's just sort of been my pursuit in my own right and in my own size. Like, what can I do that's outside the box? Like, for example, I do not watch what anybody does in my world. I want no influence from outside world. So I don't watch competitors. I don't, I don't, I don't look at anything. I don't follow anybody on Instagram that does what I do. Right? Sometimes I see things obviously, but I try to be my own self always. And when we're having meetings with the team and we're thinking about, you know, how to launch the boutique or activate or doing this, I'm like, push it more push it one step further. What can we do that's not necessarily being done? So to the, to the extent that we can, it's about just always trying something that it's innovative. And I can't think of something more, something better than lab. And I have to tell you this for me, I say liberation, not just from the legacy, but me as a designer and as a person, it's like, what a relief. Like you can have what you want. You don't have to, I don't have to witness the tension anymore. I can create a ring. I'm making a ring right now for the boutique that you would never think of making in a natural stone. Too expensive, not reasonable. Design-wise, you were used to be limited. It's like, well, I'd love to make a ring that looks like this, but this will just be prohibitively expensive. And then instead of that, I get to make whatever I imagine. That's also liberating. You know, you're saying before, I mean, what if you know, Louis Cartier was alive today, what he would think, et cetera. You know, Cartier jewelry has always been hallmarked by elegance, emotion, and innovation. So is it possible to have an emotional connection to lab-grown diamonds? Yes. Who says that, who says that emotional connection has anything to do with price? I mean... Why does it have to be so expensive to mean something? I mean, there are countless luxury products that provoke emotions. Diamonds are particularly detached from everything else. I'm not talking about art, right? Or other things like that. I'm saying as a product, diamonds are particularly detached from their from their peers in the luxury world. Couples I was mentioning to you earlier that are spending 8,000 or nine or five or six or $10,000 for these incredible rings that they love, the emotion's still there. 
The sentiment is exactly the same. They are two people that want to be together forever as long as they can. And they're coming to buy something that's beautiful and special to them. And it's just not what it used to be in terms of price. And that's a good thing. The sentiment has not changed. And, and remember that the diamond is only one part of the jewelry. The design, the ring, the setting, the brand, the packaging, the store experience, all of that is part of the emotion. And we get to keep all of that. That, that store will have all of those elements and it simply won't have that sort of doors that shuts in front of you at the last second because you just can't have it. I think that's amazing. We're starting to see luxury brands such as Gucci and watchmakers like Breitling and Todd Hoyer recently starting to introduce man-made stones in their collections. LVMH mm-hmm. has invested in a lab-grown diamond producer. We know the top luxury mm-hmm. brands will not stop using natural diamonds anytime soon, but do you see more lab-grown diamonds making their way into the mix of these legacy brands? If I was a fly on the wall and I could go around all these names that you've mentioned, they must have, if not daily, weekly or monthly conversations about this. How do we do it? What happens when people come in the store and say, I only want to buy lab-grown diamonds? Why are you not offering lab-grown diamonds? I think that what you're seeing is sort of, these. first of all, these groups own all the brands, right? So let's say one group is telling, you know, Tag Huyer, hey, why don't you try Lab Diamonds on those watches, see how it's received. Let's test it out on the brands where we have more flexibility, you know? But I think the consumer is ultimately going to be the one that's going to provoke the changes. It's not really... I mean, it is the brands, but the brands are going to do it because the consumers want it. They're not, you don't see uh, some of these brands coming out in full throttle support of mining and natural diamonds. You know, they're just sort of looking and seeing. I, I just went to the jewelry show in Las Vegas. It's a huge jewelry show. Uh, and that's what you see. That's what you feel. It's on everybody's mind. It's on everybody's lips. What do we do? How do we turn? What, um, you know, what is happening? And so I think that's, that's what they're doing. So the brands that have creatively more flexibility are definitely going to introduce it. Uh, I think there are brands like mine that have, I was as, as at a size, Scott, where pivoting was, an emotional decision, but the the risk versus reward was was small. I mean, or big, whatever, however you uh, interpret that sentence. I didn't have a hundred years behind me, or fifty years around me, or hundred thousand clients or inventory that I had to contend with. This this, I just decided to be leaning into the future. And I think these brands are. Um, uh, for the most part, uh, thinking about that. You also have to consider that Cartier, Van Cleef, and all these brands, and I don't know what that mix is, but don't rely on diamonds as much as you think. Cartier sales are probably, most most of Cartier sales are probably in watch category, jewelry category, not necessarily containing diamonds. So I don't know what the what the product mix is, but you know it's not it's they're not completely entirely uh, dependent on diamonds. It's a good I don't know if it's a a decent example of transformation is like Tesla uh, uh, dominated the electrical electric market for fifteen years, right? And the brands the the other huge manufacturing brand that we know of. Uh, took it took them 15 years <laughs> because oh my god like is this a is this really happening b do consumers really want this c can i do it how much do i have to invest and how much do i have to change and that 
transformation takes a very long time. For me, the transformation took a, month, took a few months. But for these brands you're talking about, it cannot be done overnight. So I think that they're talking about it. I think everybody's talking about it. The strategy going forward, that is you know, still to be determined. So Jean, looking forward five years, how do you want the brand to grow? You know, I'd like to open boutiques. Um, I am actually um, excited about this one because uh, it's going to be the first of its kind. I, I mentioned that I had I basically operated virtually and out of a website for the past decade, a little bit by design and also by necessity. Um, this lab-grown energy and, and the opportunity has really compelled me to decide to open a boutique and I'd like to open more of them first in the US, but also uh, internationally and just be sort of at the, uh, at, the for, at the forward position of lab grown, lab designer luxury brand penetration in, the, in our industry. More boutique would be uh, wonderful, and uh, and then once once that I think once that is complete, or one if if and when that happens, I think that's I will feel like I have accomplished what I set out to do. And it's I'd, I'd be remiss, Scott, if I did not mention that uh, Lab Diamond for me is sort of like uh, you know uh, opportunity meets uh, whatever chance or chance meets opportunity or. I, I, I couldn't have, I didn't think about it. I was looking for it and it just sort of just matured and presented itself at that moment in time where I was just like ready to do this. Well, that's a good way to put a bow tie on the whole thing. Uh, Jean Doucet, founder and CEO of Jean Doucet. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and best of luck with thank the you. opening of the boutique. Thank you very much, Scott.